If, like me, you're a fan of Somerset's rich history and the buildings and architecture that give us a connection to our cultural heritage, you'll definitely be interested by the work of our sponsors for this episode, Artichoke. Not only is Artichoke's furniture and cabinetry beautiful to look at, it's also designed around real life. When I meet guests, I often find the history and legacy of the buildings they live and work in hugely interesting. And what's unique about Artichoke is their commitment to fitting beautiful period houses for modern life while maintaining that heritage. They are one of, if not the leading company in the whole UK for architectural joinery. Their expertise in working with wood is not only adding to the legacy of this country, but also creating a new generation of craftsmanship in Somerset. If you're at all interested in interiors, design or period buildings, you should definitely take a look at the work they're doing. To find out more, you can listen to my interview with Artichoke founder Bruce Hodgson or go to artichoke.co.uk. Hello and welcome to Somerset Stories, the podcast which explores the lives of the people who live, work and create in Somerset. My name's Lewis Webb and each week I get to share the stories of some of the inspiring, creative and successful individuals and families that make this beautiful county their home. This season we'll also be showcasing some of the area's musical talent, with tracks from local artists being played in each podcast. This week we've got an acoustic track from singer-songwriter Ollie Hillier. As ever, your comments, reviews and feedback are always appreciated. And if you'd like to send us a message, you can email hello at somersetstories.com. My guest for the final episode of this season is one of the country's go-to people for all things food. A writer, restaurant critic for The Telegraph, and you've probably seen him as one of the guest critics on MasterChef, William Sitwell. When he's not writing about food and drink, William is also busy running supper clubs, curating wines, and is even a partner at a cider company right here in Somerset. William, welcome to Somerset Stories. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be in Somerset. <laughs> this is a lovely little corner of the county as well, with just at the sort of Exmoor foothills. Are you a walker? Have you done much exploring around there? We're lucky enough to have a few acres, so um, I've explored those. In fact, I just, I'm a kind of obsessive mower and because we haven't got any sheep grazing on one of the fields, I've mowed a path all the way through, which sort of extends the, the garden, it feels, by, you know, by miles. And it's rather lovely. To, it's like sort of the parting of the waves as we walk through it. And I, I walk along there with the dog and with the children and look back at what's called Willet Hill and across a little wood, which is called Bitter Cleave Copse. And it's incredibly quiet and beautiful here. So I've explored our own little patch. I haven't walked much further and I have to say, even though I do cycle, I've got two bicycles, the hills are so steep around here that <laughs> actually I've done this terrible thing. Well, it's actually the most amazing thing, which is I bought a Peloton. So I cycle indoors <laughs> uh, with an instructor shouting at me from New York or somewhere. <laughs> but it does, it sort of pumps you. Um, so we haven't explored massively. Um, I haven't been on huge bike rides. We have got in the car, because I've got two very small children. It's quite hard actually going out and about because you're so ruled by their timetables. So we have got in the car and explored. We drove through Minehead and went around Watchit, and drove to Porlock. And I, there are some really exciting places I'm looking forward to getting to know, little pubs and couple of hidden beaches there may be. Mm. Um, so I know the Blackdown Hills a bit better because we spent about a year there living with my mother-in-law before we moved here. 
so it is it is brand new territory for me. Somerset was always a word that I knew from my childhood because it was where an aunt of mine lived. Um, and I had another great friend of mine who who lives near um, sort of towards Bath. And he's good to say with him sometimes. He always called it God's own county. So I've, uh, yeah, finally made it here, which is wonderful. I feel very lucky. The Sitwell's origins are from Derbyshire, is that right? Mm -hmm. But you, you were born elsewhere. Yeah, I was born in London, spent a lot of my childhood in Oxfordshire, particularly in a little thatched cottage in a tiny hamlet called Chilson. And actually growing up there in what was quite sort of old-fashioned 1970s England, you know, living here reminds me of that because it is local and real and there are butchers that exist in order to sell meat to local people, not because it's some fashion statement. There are delis selling local produce because it just makes sense. There's a local garage where you can get your car fixed. Um, I don't think I've been to a supermarket for, you know, weeks now. It's actually because my wife does most of the shopping at Waitrose in Wellington. But I mean, um, you can exist very happily here without doing huge shops in big cities or towns. And the local butchers, Thorns in Wiverliscombe is amazing. Their beef, which is sourced by the brother of the, one of the guys who owns it, literally comes from over the hill. So that kind of old-fashioned local feeling does remind me of when we grew up in Oxfordshire, which is now kind of sandblasted and lived in by, you know, multi-millionaires who sort of helicopter to London and so mm. on. So a key part of my child was, was, was in this little thatch cottage in this tiny little village in what felt like the middle of nowhere, very rustic. Um, my father worked in London, but we spent long holidays there a few weeks in London now and, now and again. So that, that I feel was my childhood because that was sort of the time when you know, I had my chopper and I used to sort of burn up and down the village street doing little jumps and stunts and sipping water from the little spring by the village green. And uh, it was a rather an idyllic childhood. And it's, it's not looked at through rose-tinted spectacles. It was a very beautiful sort of time in I think all of our lives and my family actually living quite so sort of simply in a small little village. You're a middle child, one of three. What kind of things did you get up to together as siblings? Do you know, I was just thinking about this because I was writing a review about a, a restaurant called the Double Red Duke, which is this brand spanking new place not far from where we used to live, thinking, you know, how incredibly different um, life is now there. What did we used to do? I mean I used to do a lot of nothing, which kept me very happy. I remember I used to sit in my bedroom, literally staring over the, into the village street, watching very few people walk past. I used to sit at the bottom of the stream on the edge of this compost heap, just sort of chucking pebbles into the stream. And then there was this wonderful family opposite called the Hodgsons, Hillary and Godfrey. And actually, he was a very well-known journalist who died quite recently, actually. He was a great writer on American politics. They had about 16 cats, and we used to kind of kidnap them occasionally and <laughs> see how high we could throw them, because they always landed on their feet. And then we used to sort of teach some, of, to go and tease some of the village loonies. Um, so 
that was when we go for walks. I remember I used to go for very early morning walks with my mother. And one morning, I remember I was always, as a sort of eight-year-old, picking up anything that sort of took my, uh, caught my attention. And I found this little, what looked like a little ring. And we, we took it home, and it was literally by the, the Evenlode River. And they'd ploughed particularly deeply that year. And we took it home and cleaned it up. And it looked like a sort of, like a sort of ring brooch. And my mother sent it to the Ashmolean Museum. And it turned out it was a 14th century ring brooch. And we took it to the local landowner because it was probably his rather than, um, what do you call it, treasure. And he very grandly said I could keep it. And actually I've got it in a frame somewhere around here somewhere. But um, I used to go around picking up stones and occasionally finding uh, you know, ancient artifacts. <laughs> but we spent time in London as well. So I also went, I was, I went to prep school in Northamptonshire. I was quite young, I was still seven when I went to this place called Madewell Hall, which was sort of fantastically brutal and crazy. And uh, I'd, I wouldn't, I don't regret a day of it. Regular slippers and being caned. And um, uh, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> Speaking of school, I think you are the first Old Etonian that we've had on the podcast. Um, you've written about your school experience, sort of defending I suppose, the Eton way of doing things. What are your memories of your time there? Um, I have to say I wasn't a very good schoolboy. I never really applied myself. I was constantly getting what were called rips, where you got your homework or EWs, which stood for extra work back, which was ripped at the top because it was so appalling. And you'd had to take it to your housemaster and he'd sign it and you'd get kind of another bollocking. So I... I always sort of had a problem applying myself and I only just scraped into Eton having failed my common entrance the first time because I hadn't really put much effort into it. So I kind of, you know, I got through the school, made lots of friends who I still see. There were some incredible characters, the most amazing teachers. There was this wonderful man called Michael Kidson who taught us history, who's a great kind of legendary figure. He was a proper teacher of history. He was a man who literally stood by a blackboard and told stories, told history through his own you know, voice and his own beliefs. And it was rather amazing thinking back on it that we had lectures like that as young boys. It was a real privilege. I was taught theology by this amazing man called David Cooper, who was a, a chaplain to, I think it was two para. He'd been in the Falklands. And he became quite a kind of good friend, really. He was a wonderful man. Uh, Eric Anderson, who died, I think, a couple of years ago now, one of the great headmasters, certainly of Eton, if not of all other schools. He was, he taught uh, at Fetis, so he, you know, he had Blair under him at some point. He was the most magnificent man. It was a sort of strange period of, I don't know, insecurity, uh, secret boozing, uh, smoking underneath a table with a tablecloth up a vent, trying to get away with stuff, not doing very much work, and uh, growing up and wearing, you know, that traditional uniform of the stiff collar and the, the tails. You know, I'm much happier not being at school, put it that way, but I wasn't unhappy, but it was just, 
it was just school. I sort of, I'm not a great fan of schools. They kind of give me the fear. I don't know. I think I still have a sort of perpetual fear that I'm about to get busted for something, or <laughs> about to hand work in late, or I've failed another exam. I was quite good at failing exams. Um, we had uh, at the end of various years uh, annual exams, and one year I failed in most of my key subjects, and you you get what's called you become what's called a generals total failure. No one uses the S on generals. So in front of all of my peers, several hundred of us, you know, my name was called out as general total failure. And I think that when you're called a general total failure at the age of 13, it kind of strikes you that it's quite sensible if you could avoid failing again. <laughs> I have to say I'm very proud of one of my other fellow GTFs, Ed Dunlop, who's now one of the most successful trainers. So some of us have kind of managed to struggle through and put that behind us. But it's quite a tough thing to be told at a very small age that you are a failure. So I wouldn't say Eton was massively happy, but I'd look back on it very fondly. And I made amazing friends and it was the mm. most fabulous institution. And I enjoy being in the choir. And that got me into College Chapel, which is this beautiful cathedral-like chapel, amazing acoustics, where I, tr I was told I shouldn't get in the choir, so I tried to sing flat failed and they immediately put me in the college chapel choir so I was a sort of treble with quite a sweet voice I suppose singing various you know Latin bits and pieces at um, you know the various services and mm -hmm. anthems and so on so I enjoyed music I played the drums I tried to learn the guitar but I was too lazy and I kind of fiddled about a lot really <laughs> I got through it so one of your contemporaries during that time would have been Somerset's own Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yep. What is it like seeing your old school friends running the country? <laughs> I wouldn't say my old school friends are running the country. Um, and I wouldn't say Jacob's running the country, but he is a very old friend of mine. And, you know, he was, he was my old pal I used to come and stay down in Somerset with. And I have very fond memories of that. Um, he's a godfather to my eldest daughter and I'm a godfather to his daughter Mary. We correspond often. I don't see him often enough because he's quite busy. I'm hugely proud of, you know, his personal achievement to have got into the House of Commons to become leader of the House, which I think is a perfect job for him because he loves the tradition and customs and the minutiae of parliamentary business. I think he's actually very pretty well respected in the House of Commons because of you know, he's a very courteous, thoughtful man. Um, always argues his case politely, whether you agree with him or not. So, you know, if, if contemporaries of yours rise up in various fields, um, I think it's wonderful. I find it hugely satisfying that I know People at school with me who are, you know, become successful racehorse trainers like Ed Dunlop or politicians like Jacob or actors like, you know, Dominic West. It's a coincidence we were at school together. You know, if, if Eaton does one thing, I suppose it probably sort of treat, teaches you a bit of confidence. We were very heavily lectured on this before we left about making sure that that confidence doesn't err into arrogance. And we were told that specifically by Eric Anderson, 
in a talk before we left and I, and, you know, it's a really important lesson that and one hopes one doesn't sort of stray too much over that because it is important to be confident and, you know, I think I was fairly unconfident for quite a long time in my life. I feel a bit more confident now but uh, that was a salutary, you know, lecture. I know I'm not, I've not forgotten that but uh, to answer your question, there's not enough friends of mine running the country to be honest. <laughs> You do come from a, a sort of line of, of writers and, and critics in the family. Your, your grandfather famously was a, a writer and a critic. What memories do you have of him? Well, my grandfather, Sir Cheverell Sitwell, Sir Sir Cheverell Sitwell, or Sir Several Sitwells, as Private Eye used to call him, was the most wonderful man. And I got to know him very well because when we moved into Weston Hall, which is our family home in Northamptonshire, in the sort of early 80s, uh, my grandmother had died. We moved into a corner of the house. So I got to know Sashi, as we all called him very well. And he was a sort of owlish, very amused and amusing, curious man um, who was sort of obsessed with, I don't know, the cost of, you know, how much a suit cost. It sort of absolutely staggered him and how old someone was. He could never believe it. Or he... He'd written various columns throughout his life, and so he was always obsessed with the minutiae of life in the most wonderful way. Um, he always professed to have absolutely no religious feelings, although he'd probably been into more churches, synagogues, mosques than anyone on the planet. He wrote about art and music and literature. He read over 130 books. It's just quite extraordinary. When I knew him, you know, he was, you know, it was towards the end of his life, and... You know, he was becoming a bit forgetful, but he was still a very sort of charming grandfather to know. He was looked after by this amazing housekeeper called Gertrude, who my grandmother had written in her diary, uh, had sacked after about the fourth week, and she'd written, gave Gertrude her notice, sad but inevitable. And Gertrude was still there 50 years later. And I remember her, you know, making him some... She'd give him some soup, and scrambled eggs and a glass of Liebfrau milk, and then make him swallow his pills at night. And I recorded a few conversations with him, actually. So to me, he was a very sweet, kind and interested man, very sweet with children. His wife, my grandmother, was a much more sort of frightening character. She was a sort of husky-voiced Canadian. But I feel very privileged that I got to know Sashi. He was the youngest of this trio of extraordinary literary talents, Edith Osbert and Sir Chevrel. And um, he was the only one who married. And, yeah, I went to live in Northamptonshire. So, I, uh, yeah, I, I, my memories of him are, are, are very vivid. Did that relationship have any influence in your decision to start writing? No, not at all. And I, I sort of feel embarrassed even badging myself as a sort of writer in that lineage. I mean, I've written, what, about two or three books, he wrote 130. I'm kind of quite far behind. <laughs> they were prodigious to say the least, very industrious. I feel frustrated in the fact I'm so sort of so torn all the time that I can't focus enough on, you know, to get more books pumped out, but we can sort of talk about that. But um, if I have anything 
that they had that helps me write, and that's great. I feel privileged. It's nice. I feel very comfortable being a Sitwell. Um, it's a privilege. It's a it's a great name uh, to be associated with. I'm very proud of my ancestors, and I, you know, I've thought about them. I've lectured on them, written about them. I find Edith absolutely fascinating. I think she's an extraordinary poet, incredibly brave woman, a musical poet, avant-garde poet, very inventive, very creative. I think if Oswald Sitwell teaches you anything, it's the glory of long sentences. You know, as a scribbler of constant pieces of sort of 800, 1200 words, it's actually quite nice if I do write a book occasionally because you can let the pen flow a bit more, or rather the fingers. He wrote these amazingly long, whole, elongated paragraphs, weaving in, in and out. Um, so, you know, where we're sitting here in the library at Rook's Nest, um, there's a lot of Sitwell books around. I wish I had more time to read them, to be honest. I'm sort of embarrassed about it, really. <laughs> what were your first sort of outlets then as a writer? My first outlets? Um, my first column, I think, was called the Sitwell Slot in the CRED, which was the University of Kent's weekly or monthly newspaper. And I remember once, actually, I wrote a column and I took it to the student union and gave them this piece of paper. And the next a couple of days later, there it was in the student paper. And that gave me a huge thrill. I thought, wow, you know, you can write something and get it published. That was my first experience. I also remember being asked by the Telegraph, I didn't quite know why they knew me, to, to write a, a letter. There was this wonderful man called David Twiston Davis, who was the, editors, the, the letters editor for the Telegraph. He used to commission a lot of letters so he could cre create this very lively correspondence, not just based on letters that were sent in. And he asked me to write some letter. I don't know, it was something to do with croissants or something. Anyway, I wrote this letter and got it in. I remember my mother leaping up into my bedroom and giving me the newspaper as I woke up. Proudly, and that was my first byline. I haven't forgotten that. And then I got shifts on the Peterborough Diary, actually, which is the column in the Telegraph, where we sort of sent out cover parties. And then I used to write a bit for the Evening Standard, Londoner's Diary, covering the same sort of patch. You know, some people get into newspapers through provincial press. My route was through those kind of gossip columns. And they do teach you the art of getting facts and colour into a piece as quickly as possible. You know, colour, the quotes, the structure. You know, if you can write a diary column, if you can put something together, you know, the nub of a story in sort of 40, 50 words, it's quite a good skill to have. So that, that was quite useful. And then at the age of about 20, 23, 24, I got a job on the Sunday Express uh, on the features desk as a researcher. Um, I got that having worked a bit in politics and I've met a journalist um, and he managed to get me in and help me get an interview. Anyway, so I ended up on the Sunday Express where I was for a, yeah, for a while covering everything from sort of showbiz to TV criticism to royal stories, kind of anything really. How then did you end up writing about food? Well, 
it was around the end of the 90s and I'd sort of ended up by mistake on a magazine called Women's Journal and this amazing woman called Marcel Dargie Smith had hired me to work on her features desk or to run the features and I was a complete fish out of water I mean I was in IPC towers I used to you know, I turned up to work in a suit and everyone else is much more casual and uh, all the girls looked at me like I was like sort of almost like a Reese Mogg figure I suppose back then you know people didn't wear suits I thought that I thought you wore a suit to work and I kind of languished there and I don't think anyone really knew what I was doing there and I was sort of a bit baffled but Marcel was very kind to give me a job and obviously she thought there was something going on between my eyes and when she left this new editor came in and sort of looked at me and thought what the hell are you doing here and I got recommended by a woman called Rose Prince who's still a great friend of mine to go for the deputy editorship of this magazine called Waitrose Food Illustrated which I have to say I hadn't heard of and but I saw this magazine and I saw this lovely cover with a beautiful picture of strawberries and I thought well that looks quite interesting actually and I went for the job and you know it was a strange interview because Katie Hillier this kind of wonderful mad zany editor said to me so what do you know about food and I said well I cook and I was about to expand on that you know I'd prepared quite a good spiel but that was all I said she sort of talked at me for an hour and then gave me the job so I became deputy editor on Waitress Food Illustrated on the strength that I ate anyway um, I then you know, within about three years she left I went for her job and got it and it was the toughest thing I've ever fought for because I suddenly realized that this was a bit of a fork in the road. I could have not got the job, failed to become editor, and someone else would have been editor, and I would have been the deputy who didn't get the job. Or I could get the job, and I thought I could do amazing things with this magazine. So I fought for it like I've never fought for anything in my life, and I got it. And then I basically put all my experience and interests into running this thing, because I realized that Food was this wonderful subject that was about history and politics and culture and economics and entertaining and health and wellness, love, travel, everything. And as a journalist who was, had been sort of trained on news, I got it and I realised that actually we could do something quite exciting with this magazine. And even though it was a contract title, we could make waves. And so I set about saying, I want to have a scoop every month I want to get big stories in, big name writers. And we work really hard blagging our way. You know, if you sell yourself as this is a great organ, and it was already an established beautiful magazine, but I wanted to make a really interesting, important magazine, which I, you know, attempted to do over the sort of ensuing best part of two decades, 15 years or so, or 16 years as editor. And so that was my, I got into food kind of recommended by someone but then realized that this was an incredible subject and and all of those feelings I had then I absolutely have now I think it is the greatest subject and you know years ago I remember being I was sort of fumbling around trying to find out what the hell I wanted to do as I kind of meandered from diary column to you know I want did I want to do radio did I want to work in telly I just didn't know really didn't know how you got jobs and this wonderful guy called Andrew Knight at News International, I went to see him. 
And he said, you need to get a subject. You know, you need to kind of become, let's say, the, you know, the beer man. So you're the go-to guy on beer. And I thought, well, I don't know anything about anything. Um, and I ended up, I did get a subject finally. So I am one of many go-to people on food, I like to think. But I feel very privileged that I have this subject now as mm. my thing. I think that's really lucky. Food's critics are sometimes caricatured as being quite dour, quite austere uh, individuals. Why do you think that is? I think traditionally maybe they are. I think probably people have spent too much time looking at the kind of character in Ratatouille. Wonderful portrayed person who sits there being sniffy and looking for, you know, looking to criticise and so on. There are some critics like that, maybe like that. Um, all I can say is my brief is very simple. It's be entertaining. And right now we're not there. Well, we're starting to pick holes in things because I think while hospitality has been in such a dire uh, situation, I think the job of critics is to try and support this magnificent industry that we are a key part of, I think. So if, for me, it's about enthusing and encouraging and finding great places to eat and sharing that with the reader and doing it in a way that they find interesting and amusing. Because you don't go to a restaurant wanting to write a bad review, do you? No, I think, I mean, I think there were critics who probably relished the idea of sharpening their knives and, and doing a proper fun, you know, big takedown. And, and that's what, you know, critics always, you know, you never famously quote a critic because they've written something wonderful about a place. I mean, the PRs will and the restaurateurs will and the chefs will. But, you know, you don't look at Adrian Gill's repertoire and pick out all the, the praise. It's the bits, it's the takedowns that are fun. That's what people like and that's what readers like. Let's just be honest about it. So when, when you eat out and when I eat out, you know, your eyes and your ears are pricked and wait and looking for faults, but also looking for great things. I love writing a really great review. You know, I don't want to see cock-ups. Sometimes they fall on your lap and you go, <laughs> right, this will give us a bit of copy. But, um, you know, we're not, that, we're not all sadistic bastards who are just waiting for calamities to happen. But sometimes when they unfurl, you kind of think, okay, I shall lap that up and that will come out on, on the page. Aside from obviously how good the food tastes, what are the other essential elements for a, for a great dining experience for you? Well, service is important. The building, the way the place looks, the general feel. You know, Adrian Gill used to say that if the food's the most important thing, then you've probably gone to the wrong place if that's all you, that you talk about. The food is just one ingredient of so many um, because if you genuinely ask someone how a, how a dinner was you know it can be a bit like if you've been to see a stand-up comedian you laughed all night you loved it but you can't remember any of the jokes now I do remember the dishes <laughs> because it's my job to I also take pictures of them so that I can jog my memory when I'm writing the piece I think you're always looking for a kind of angle to go in on you know, that first sentence, that bit of energy that you've got to latch onto in order to sort of grab the reader and take them through your, from, in my case, 650 words. So there's always something you're looking for and some original angle to write about. 
But service is so important. That's why it's so miserable seeing everyone muzzled. Because that human contact between you and the waiter or waitress uh, is so essential. Service is so key. It really is important. And when you get that effortless professionalism, you really notice it. I think it's a fantastic um, career to go into, actually, that side of hospitality, into management and so on. Um, you know, if I lost everything, I wouldn't mind having, you know, I'd probably become a waiter and try and run a, run a restaurant, become a manager. You know, I've sort of watched it done. I've, you know, I love talking to people like Diego, Matsiego, Silvano, Giraldin, you know, the great Rue brothers, GMs, maitre d's. It's a fantastic skill. It's a wonderful craft for people to go into. So yeah, service, you know, but that buzz, the noise, the clatter of knives and forks as some people talk about, it's all that, it's all of that together. As a new feature for this season, we're showcasing Somerset's musical talent with tracks from local acts in each podcast. Ollie Hillier is a Bridgewater-based singer-songwriter who focuses not just on writing and performing, but on the therapeutic effects that music can have on our well-being. As someone who's confronted his own challenges, he wants his songs to help others who may be going through tough times. An acoustic track recorded earlier this year, this is Sweet Pea. Sweet Pea, apple of my eye don't know when and I don't know why You're the only reason I keep on coming home Sweet pea, what's all this about? Don't get your way, all you do is fuss and pout You're the only reason I keep on coming home I'm like the rock of Gibraltar I always seem to falter And the words just get in the way I know I'm gonna crumble Trying to stay humble But I've never been before I say Sweet pea, keeper of my soul I know sometimes I'm out of control you're the only reason I keep on coming You're the only reason I keep on And you're the only reason I keep on coming home Before moving here, you'd spent time in the family home, Western Hall. You've written quite emotionally about having to, to go through the experience of, of putting that on the market without going into all of that depth. Could you maybe touch on how it felt to have to do that? It was an extraordinary period in my life, actually. And that final week of getting out of Western, Western is this sort of word in my family that has this addictive quality. It's been this word that we've known about all our lives. And it's this house, this place, this key pillar really of my family that we've always known about and that I've known about since I was as young as I can remember visiting there and the smell of this house this not huge house not tiny house this manor house in Northamptonshire 
this house slap bang in the middle of England. Um, but my great grandfather used to allude to the beech tree in the south, on the south front that he said actually marked the centre of England. I mean, he wasn't far off. Daventry is up the road, which is more or less if you put across across England, it's there. So it's in this very quiet little rural spot of Northamptonshire, the Lost Villages, as they used to call them. And it was a house of a couple of large-ish rooms, a drawing room, library, the justice room where my ancestors used to administer justice to the locals. And then about 50 other rooms <laughs> of, of varying size, most of which were quite small and lots of attics. And a house just that is a, was a constant journey of enlightenment and discovery as you opened another door and discovered you know more shelves more cupboards and if you're someone like me who loves poking around somewhere on their own and quiet it never failed to fascinate me you can never be bored there it always annoyed me when you know once teenagers were languishing in their room looking at a phone when I was lucky enough not to have that distraction so we could just get lost in the attics and fumble around and look through ancient papers and find old books and old toys and old bits of furniture. It was just was lovely to sort of, you know, rustle around. So in my mind, I can still walk through that entire house. And I lived there and ran the house for several years and got to know and love it and have this extraordinary relationship with Weston because she was a sort of, as I wrote, you know, a tricksy mistress who tempted you in and dared you to fail. Um, but it was a house of absolute sort of magic capturing of English society over the centuries with rooms that felt and looked and smelt unique and different. And as we moved everything out of that house, that then just evaporated, just extraordinary. And the last week was sort of like a funeral as we, you know, accompanied by dozens of all these amazing clearance guys coming in and unloading the house and putting it to vans and being dispatched across the country to be stored or auctioned uh, to go to our various new houses, which was a wonderful reinterpretation of the house. I mean, we're sitting here in the library with books from Weston, with some of the paintings, bits of furniture, you know, coming together as new collections, which again will be what happens to the stuff when it's sold at Druitt's in November. Again, an opportunity for new collectors to get these things. So getting out of that house was incredibly difficult and emotional, but it was also a relief. You know, I may have failed her, but, you know, we put the white flag of surrender up when, you know, tax and insurance just made living there impossible. And, you know, I did what I could, Airbnb, my supper club, so I learned a lot about running a place and running events. Um, but it was a house that my family, uh, my ancestors turned up in 1714. So, you know, 300 years on, and it was full of, you know, stuff gathered by every generation from 18th century costumes that we call costumes now, but they just happened to be clothes that have been left in the house, but were well preserved and so they're in very good order they've been given to a wonderful museum in Northampton. So it's a house that I've known all my life and it was very hard to get out of. We were very privileged to be there, but I feel amazingly privileged that the old piece of furniture 
the old musical instrument like this 18th century lyre, this zither that lives, sits beside us now in some of these books. There's a whole bay of books here in the library at Rook's Nest of my ancestor Susanna Jennings' library. That was her 18th century library. And it was the basis of an amazing story that I hope to tell one day about how this young servant girl was educated using those very books and became one of the great women poets of the 18th century, Mary Leeper. So her story is sitting in those books, which I hope to write one day. So um, it's, it, was a, it, it was an amazing place. Um, I miss it, but I don't miss the stress of it. We've talked briefly about your wife having family in the, the Somerset area. Was moving here sort of a foregone conclusion? No, not at all. I mean, when, when the decision was made to sell Western, we were looking around Northamptonshire, Oxfordshire, we saw a couple of places in Gloucestershire. Then after Christmas before lockdown, we had what we reckoned, even though we hadn't sold the house at that point, was going to be the last Christmas at Western. So there are 20 odd people all staying. And we were kind of a bit knackered after that. And the house is expensive to heat, even though I just finished putting in a brand new spanking new heating system in, but I couldn't afford the oil. So my wonderful mother-in-law said, come stay with me down at Briscoe, which is near Wellington. So we went there for January, or two weeks in January, stayed for January. And then I thought, well, let's stay here for a bit, you know, a bit longer. She was very kind, sort of acquiesced. So February came and went. And then this plague landed on us and we had lockdown. So we got locked down there. So we basically stayed throughout lockdown with the odd foray up to Western. And we thought, well, why don't we look around here? I mean, it occurred to us at one point we should go and live in France. I actually went and saw a few houses in Burgundy and realised that was completely insane. I would have had even more of a headache than with Western. And it was flat, actually, and everyone spoke French. <laughs> Sometimes you've got to go to places to realise that. I mean, the mustard was great and the white, you know, the Chardonnay is wonderful. But anyway, it was slightly inconvenient. But anyway, I knocked that idea on the head. So we started looking at places around here and this this place popped up and uh, the moment lockdown ended we pounced on it and lucky enough to we were lucky enough to get it. You talked again briefly about the the local butchers in Wivliscombe. Somerset has maybe sort of a revival of of its popularity in terms of food culture and producers. Are there any hidden gems or, or new discoveries that you that you found? Well I mean the hidden gems are Things like the butchers and the Thorns the Butcher and the Wibby Larder and the brewery in Wiverliscombe. And I love the fact you can just go down there and get a huge old carton of milk filled with their pale ale, which I think is absolutely delicious. What I'm, I am trying to get together with various other foodies in the county and to try and promote the brand of Somerset food because it has a great reputation, but no one's managed to yet sort of put them all, put it all together, get funding, shout about the fact that produce made in Somerset is really quite extraordinary because, you know, there's a coastline, because there's amazing grass, because there is fantastic cider. There's a bit of wine nudging there now. It has, you know, I mean, I was a patron of Northamptonshire Food and Drink, which was a great privilege and I loved it. But here I am in a county that I think is even is more naturally attuned to great food and drink. So I definitely want to sort of 
grab some of that and to shout about it. And one of the things I want to do is events to bring together this produce. And I've been running a supper club now for several years. I'm running it in London with Fortnum and Mason from this summer. But I want to run the William Sitwell Supper Club down here in Rook's Nest. We've got this fabulous cow shed. So we're doing an event on the 16th and 17th of, of July where I'm teaming up with an amazing restaurant in London, coincidentally called Nest. So Nest is coming to Rook's Nest for a Rook's Nest Fest, which is the Williams Sitwell Supper Club. And we're going to be having long tables of longhorn beef and some local ciders, local ales, a little bit of music. And we'll do some lunches and dinners over, over two days and uh, see what we can find. I'm really excited about that, actually. So people go to my website, williamsitwell.com. They can, I'll get linked to tickets, but I think tickets will sell quite quickly because we've got amazing chefs. We can't do a long banqueting table at the moment because of COVID restrictions, but we can certainly sell tables for two, four, six, 20 people. So I'm really excited about that, see what we can do in our big shed. It's incredibly pretty. Uh, this location. I think people will have a lot of fun. Um, so I'm really keen to taste more of the local food, get engaged with local produce. And there's a south facing slope just by the cow shed. I quite like to have the ground tested. I'm not sure it's got chalk or flint, but maybe the shale will take a vine. We'll wait and see. <laughs> One thing that I didn't know about you until recently is that you have your own cider brand. What's the experience like of, you know, coming to Somerset, the, the home of cider? Well, funnily enough, our cider is actually made in Somerset and that was chosen by me and my other Three C's. It's called Three C's Cider and it's a really lovely sort of medium dry cider made in Somerset. So it was originally made in Her Herefordshire, but then we found a smaller uh, cidery down here um, who makes it for us. So it was a very interesting experience of taking a brand and taking a product to market. You know, I have a wine business as well, which I launched about a year ago, where, again, it's been a very interesting experience seeing how it, it's tough. You know, you have to fight for every customer, whether it's cider or whether it's through williamshousewines.com. And the idea of my wine business is to make choosing wine slightly simpler. You know, wine is a kaleidoscope of extraordinary innovation and information and knowledge but I try and make things just a bit simpler for people. So I only ever sell eight wines at any one go. So that if you like what I write about food, maybe you'll give me a go on, on wine. So that's, how, that's the sort of conceit of my wine business. So yeah, I love cider, I love wine. So it's fun to dabble. And if I can sell my own stuff, make a couple of quid, then uh, so much the better. Just to finish off, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about your book from last year. Mm -hmm. So as you were saying, the plague hit us in March and shortly after we were all told that we weren't allowed to go out, you released a book about going out for dinner. <laughs> how long had you wanted to tell that story and how difficult was it seeing it come out where I suppose the full experience of being able to understand the history of a restaurant paired with going to people's favorite restaurants just wasn't possible. Yeah, it was kind of weird. You know, my history of eating out at the restaurant 
comes out literally, literally on the one day, uniquely in history, where probably 95% of the world's restaurants were shut. So you could either say that was massively fortuitous because it gave people the opportunity to vicariously enjoy eating out through my book, or you could say it was a total disaster because I wasn't able to promote it with events, with a launch, and there were no bookshops. <laughs> so people couldn't, that are where even so people couldn't buy it, except people of course buy online. But bookshops are pretty key, not just Amazon. So I wasn't depressed by it. It was a bit frustrating. Um, I think it was tough for a, a lot of writers who have books out. We're trying to shout about it this year, but there's a lot more books that have come out subsequently. So I just hope that uh, you know it, this book comes to some people's notice. You know, it was a wonderful story to tell. It was a difficult story to grapple because how do you tell the story of eating out in 65, 70,000 words? I just found a timeline and started at Pompeii and ended, you know, relatively recently. Um, I probably need to do a, a prologue now because the word COVID isn't mentioned. I look into the future. I certainly didn't, like any of us, see this coming. Um, so, yeah, it was frustrating. But yeah, the book came out, and when you have a book out, it's always a matter of huge pride. It's, it's a huge, exciting thing to, you know, when your little puppy comes out, because it's a very lonely, tough process writing books. It's a colossal labour. You just keep climbing this bloody hill. And every time you get to the top, or you think you get to the top, there's another, you know, another peak emerges. And um, it's, you know, I think the hardest part of a book is when you, you know, you've got about 100,000 words to write, or 60,000. You're 25,000 down, you feel you've kind of got someone, you realise, no, you've, you've barely started. It's graft, you just got to get the words out and you can't prevaricate, you just have to write, you just got to write. You mentioned it sort of covers everything from Pompeii through to modern times. What are some of your favourite anecdotes uh, that you get to tell? Well, I mean, I think to me, what is extraordinary is that you know, until the kind of 14th century or the 15th century, there's sort of eating out doesn't even exist really in England to any sort of organised, civilised extent. Yet when you go back to AD 79, hospitality is alive, thriving, kicking, cosmopolitan, sophisticated, diverse and superb from great wines, Falernian wines to great local produce there in Pompeii, this live and kicking, fashionable seaside town. You know, what the hell happened? You know, I, I thought ideas were supposed to spread but the tentacles of historical stories, you know, they seem to dive down to the earth and they kind of pop up several centuries later. So Pompeii is a fun place to start because it was such a thriving dining scene. And because this place was literally frozen in history, you can see the menus. You can see the grains of you know, corn that people were about to make into bread. It's literally there, captured for posterity. But there are so many parts of that book that I love. I mean, Alexis Sawyer, this extraordinary chef who basically created the Reform Club in its kitchen in the kind of early part of the 19th century is a, is a bit that I love. You know, when you, someone gets given carte blanche to create a new kitchen and all these sort of stuffy guys going to the club of the Reform and never interested, interested in food. But actually the one thing they were kept on doing then when it opened was to go and see the kitchens. Um, because, you know, it was the beginning of so many exciting parts of Victorian Industrial Revolution where he was able to manifest 
you know, every lots of new technology in, in terms of his kitchens. Um, so, yeah, there are so many stories. You know what? Just read the bloody book, you know. <laughs> Given that COVID has created a bit of a hiatus away from the restaurant world, now things are beginning to open up. We're, we're getting back into looking forward. What are you most excited about in the food world? I'm really excited about new restaurant launches. There's a lot that's a, that are about to pop up. There's a huge amount of pent-up energy. The chefs that I speak to week in, week out on my podcast, Biting Talk, are really eager to get going. There's huge frustrations. But chefs and restaurateurs are some of the most creative people in this country. And that pent-up energy is about to be unleashed as restrictions ease. There are a lot of new restaurants opening. You know, there's money being invested in hospitality. I hope that people will see working in hospitality as a really viable, exciting journey because there's a huge staff shortage at the moment, Brexit, furlough, holding people back from getting new jobs possibly. I'm excited to eat myself stupid around Somerset and discover, you know, pubs and and, and restaurants, of which I think there are lots. I'm excited to find some nice places by the sea, get over to Lyme, Regis, and eat down there on the Jurassic Coast. I want to go and eat at Robin Wilde, which is Harriet Mansell's new place in Lyme, Regis. There's a lot of talent in the food and drink business. Lots of young talent, old talent, creating new jobs and new lives for themselves. So there's lots of eating to be done out there, and I am itching to get gobbling and stuffing my face. William, thank you so much for your time. You've been a fantastic guest. Great. Well, it's a real privilege to be in Somerset and to talk about Somerset. So thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Somerset Stories. If you liked it, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on social media at Somerset Stories or email hello at somersetstories.com. Music on all Somerset Stories productions is created by Jazar. You can be found at betterwithmusic.com. See you next time.